Um, so I just want to uh, start with some definitions and talk about the scope of what I'm talking about. The word AI itself tends to encompass an enormous set of things, and it often is used in the world of computer science to encompass sort of anything we're not already un understanding fully. I'm going to be talking about a particular element of AI, which is artificial entities. Essentially, you know, there's a whole set of things under AI, for instance, machine learning, natural language processing. These are a piece of it, but what I'm particularly interested in here is the idea of things that we think of as other beings in some way that are made possible with a computer, something that you would have some kind of relationship with as opposed to a analysis of a large-scale problem. And particularly what I'm interested in are our ethical relationship with those beings. Um, we can look at these as having, there's a, a three-part relationship. It's a little bit like the relationship in a portrait between the artist, the subject, and the audience. Here what you have is the maker of those entities. You have the user or person that is um, in some kind of relationship with them, and there's the entity themselves. And there are ethical considerations about all three of those pieces. And we'll be talking about, I'll be talking about all three of them through this talk. But um, the main piece of it that I'll be talking about at, an, at the core is the issue of sentience. And sentience is like many of the other words that get thrown around here. There's thinking, there's intelligence, there's sentience, there's consciousness. We can be somewhat, but not exceedingly precise. So the definition of sentience we'll be using here is that a sentient being has some kind of feeling or motion. The minimum of it is that they experience pain or pleasure. And it's really, it's important here because it's the center of the, this is the center for ethics, but the concept is central to ethics. Um, as I've found in a number of philosophical papers, there's the idea, there's not a lot of ethics that you have in relationship to a rock. If you pick up a rock and throw it, it's not gonna be harmed. If you pick up a sentient being and throw it, it will be harmed. And so that notion of sentience is very central to ethics. However, when we are dealing with at least any of today's artificially intelligent beings, we're dealing with things that are not sentient, but they seem very sentient, and we perceive them that way. In fact, it's very, very easy for us to perceive anything that interacts with us as sentient. And so that's going to be the core of the interesting ethical stuff here, because that's the most unprecedented part of this, is how do we deal with these things that we think of as sentient and they're not, and what are the ethical issues that are brought up by that? Um, and hopefully my voice will last this talk. Um, the other piece, and this is that third element, remember I said there's the, the makers of these things, there's the humans who are using them, and there's this, the entities themselves. And for now, we will work on the assumption that if something is a non-sentient being, it is a robot, it might look like it's sentient, but it's not, that thing does not have ethical considerations, though the people using it may have. On the other hand, there's also um, what's known in the world of AI. There's weak AI and strong AI, and the questions under strong AI are what happens if we are actually able 
to manufacture something with some form of sentience. And we will get into those questions a little bit later on. It's that is such an enormous field in itself. We're only going to sort of scratch the surface of what some of the questions are there. Um, and what I'd like to start with are two of the earliest sort of works and papers in AI. Um, one is Alan Turing's famous paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence, that he published in Mind in 1950. Um, and I think m most of you here are probably fairly familiar with it. This is where we get the famous Turing test that's in popular culture that says, well, we have to think of something as intelligent if using text as its form of interaction, it can fool people into thinking that it's human. And I don't, um, how many of you have actually read this paper? So not very many of you. This is probably the worst <laughs> Uh, worst written, very, very famous, influential paper ever. If you had, I've just, I've, I've read it maybe a hundred times. Like, if this had come to a journal that you were editing, it would be an immediate reject, not like resubmit. It's, it's all over the place. It goes into these long digressions about what is a, um, you know, what, what's Turing, compu what's computability. Um, it has these straw men, but there, it's been incredibly influential. It had, it has centered among other things, the notion of AI around this kind of deceptive test. Can you fake being human as being a really central tenet to it? It has centered it around the idea that language is key to understanding intelligence. But the part that I want to look at here is a couple of predictions that Turing made, which was the famous one was that he said in 50 years, you know, there will be machines that can pass this. He was a little bit optimistic, but right now we actually have a number, for instance, we have um, a very current problem with Twitter bots, where in the limited domain of Twitter, where people are, are using only text, they're speaking fairly cryptically, it's exceedingly hard to tell if something, if an entity, even if it is tweeting quite frequently whether it is a bot or a human. So to some level in the real world, we are already dealing with um, computer entities that we cannot distinguish from otherwise intelligent humans. But the other piece that I think was is less well known that he predicted was that in 50 years time again, the question can machines think would become meaningless because the meaning of the word think would have changed so much that we would no longer care about that distinction. And I think that's an important piece because that question of what do we care, now think is also not a very well-defined word, and it's also, there's a, we can think about intelli pure intelligence as saying, yes, a machine can be intelligent. Some, there's def definitions of intelligence that say intelligence is about can you solve complex goals well? And it doesn't necessarily involve being alive or being sentient in any way. Whereas sentience really is this notion of, of consciousness and being. Think is kind of ambiguous. You know, can a machine think? Does it mean it's experiencing thinking or is it just kind of intelligent and acting like it's thinking? It's not quite clear what he meant. I'm not sure he knew which he meant. Um, he had the idea of the Turing substitution is not quite as flippant as it has come to seem that you could make parsing machines that do this because he writes that he thought it would be something where you spent 15 years with like a child machine patiently taking it to the park and teaching it like a child. It seemed more that his notion of what children were was actually quite naive. Um, as he said, they were somewhat like a 
notebook that you buy at the stationer is kind of blank, and then you kind of fill it in, and then you have an adult intelligence. Um, which I said, this is why this paper might not have gotten into it. <laughs> any other journal. Um, but anyway, so I think the important thing to think about is what is happening to, what is actually happening to our commonplace use of the word thinking or sentient, and how is the existence of all the types of intelligent seeming entities that we deal with changing the ways that we're thinking about what does it mean to have a mind and what do we care about? Because are we really changing our level of comfort with this and what are the implications for that. And then the second kind of famous historical piece is the program ELISA, which has also um, come in popular culture. I mean, there's lots of versions of it you can play. This is the, it's a, the program that's also called Doctor. Um, it was written by a computer scientist named Joseph Weizenbaum. Eliza was actually a framework that was could be any kind of sort of chatbot that he made, and then it would have different scripts that would play different roles. Doctor was one script for this. It ended up being the most famous one. I think there may have only been one other sort of small one ever written, and so now Eliza and Doctor are kind of the same thing. But what's interesting about this was he set out, he was studying natural language, he thought it'd be a good way to interact with machines. Um, he made this as a, what he called a Rogerian psychotherapist. And the idea of Eliza was that you could talk to it, it doesn't have any intelligence, it takes your words and it turns them into questions. A, a, a way of speaking that if you didn't have the framing of thinking of it as a psychotherapist, it would just seem kind of weird and machine-like. But what's interesting is that switch, once you frame it as the psychiatrist who's just asking questions back, then all of a sudden it seems like a very realistic, sort of human-like being because you now have a role in which you understand that type of behavior coming from a sentient being. I don't think he had set out to build it as something that would be a critique of Turing, but it immediately became that because I think he was just trying to show this interesting natural language thing. People then ran with this. Apparently his own secretary, who he said had watched him program it, started using it and then asked him to leave the room because she wanted to talk to it in privacy. And people started, um, particularly another computer scientist, Kenneth, um, Colby got very excited about the idea of providing therapy this way and building this as a serious therapist. Weizenbaum, who was a um, refugee from Hitler's Germany, was horrified by this. And he eventually gave up his career as a computer scientist and spent the rest of his time at MIT talking about how dangerous computer scientists and, in particular, not very well socialized computer programmers were for the world. And that, um, but he said that this was this a sign of an innate lack of humaneness, that we would care so little whether the therapist we were speaking to or the other being was actually human or not, and that our willingness to engage in this kind of interaction was very, very dangerous and was the part of humankind that had allowed the horrors of sort of machine level, industrial level genocide to happen, and that we had to really concentrate on remembering that we only want to relate to actual people as people. So those are sort of the two, two of the framings that 
interestingly enough, were some of the earliest work in this area and kind of outline a lot of the big questions that we still, still deal with today. This is some of the code behind ELISA. And what's important here is that you cannot tell just from interacting with ELISA exactly what kind of intelligence is behind it. But if here, you know, what he was saying is you can li literally look at the code and see there is nothing here that in any way could possibly be construed as sentient. Okay. So um, now we're going to, the first part of, and the main part of this talk is going to be dealing with some of the existing versions that we see of this now and what are some of the specific ethical questions that they bring up. Um, so getting back to you know, following on with this notion of therapist, this is a um, therapy program that comes, um, actually these all I think come out of Stanford, um, but this is a military one that is meant to be used um, to help soldiers who come back with PTSD. And they're saying like, we do not have enough doctors to treat them, and if we build these therapy programs, then everybody can have access to them. And so here I think the, eth the ethical question um, becomes much more immediate, you know, whether Weizenbaum was right. Does it matter if there's a, a human in the, therapist, uh, in the therapist's position? And in particular, what is the, what's the role of, of their thinking about you and having empathy? What it turns out is actually kind of interesting about the Rogerian psychologist is um, the actual, um, Rogers, who that's named for, was known for his insistence that the role of the therapist was to be an empathic person. Even though they were only, you know, asking these questions based on what you said, he believed that the healing power of therapy came from this actual empathy of the psychiatrist. Um, but to, you know, to think about some of the ethics here, is so what happens, um, for instance, if you go to a therapist and you're actually both a little irritating and kind of boring, and you go there week after week, and you, you know, you're the patient who like comes in and you have the sniffles and you like wipe your hand on your nose and then it's on the chair and you drone on and on. Maybe your therapist hates you, just can't stand you, but you're the doc, you know, she's the doctor and it's her job to act like she's empathic, so she's well-trained and she's like, yes, and she speaks very clearly all the time thinking, okay, 10 more minutes here. The question here is what, what level of empathy do, are we ever guaranteed in this kind of situation? It's a very interesting relationship where you are paying someone, sometimes hundreds of dollars an hour, to listen to you and be empathic. Is the importance simply the words that they're saying? Is it what they're really thinking? Are you actually getting a better experience if they actually empathize with you or if they're just very good at faking it? If it really doesn't matter what they're thinking or if, or if you're self-conscious and you worry about what they're thinking, would you actually have a better experience with something that at some level you knew wasn't thinking anything? Um, you can try these questions out at home. This is a, um, how many of you have heard of Wobot? Okay, so a few of you. So Wobot, um, for those who haven't, is a app you can download and it's a cognitive behavioral therapy bot that will ask you questions on your phone every day. It's free. And um, they say there's, I think, been like over 100,000 downloads of this. Um, 
is that, you know, are the ethical questions around therapy relevant here? Is it simply that the questions are important? Um, how different is it that it is framed as a little being as opposed to a questionnaire? Because there would be no question of your developing a relationship with this imaginary being who's not actually thinking about you. But here, if we read this, it says, you know, before we begin, can I just check in to see if there's any way this anxiety might be serving you in some way? I think one of the things that's important to remember in all of these sort of chat entities is once you start using the word I, you have already engaged in some level of framing this, even if there was no adorable robot picture, it's framed as something that is thinking. There's you know, a sense in which it is presenting itself as an entity. If you just had a, a questionnaire and it was only text and it said, you know, take the eye out and said, um, before you begin, think about is there any way that this anxiety might be serving you without any entity, would that be more effective or less effective? Is the fact that it doesn't have a deceptive element to it make it better? Is there a fact that it doesn't have, give you the sense of there being an entity, does that make it less effective? So if there is something in that sort of entity deception that makes it more powerful, does that make it ethically better, acceptable, still problematic? So I think those are some of the interesting framings to go um, kind of beyond the beginning of the questions around things like the robot therapy. Um, here's another one that I think is interesting because we're also starting to see a lot of these entities in nursing situations. This one is um, particularly, I think, interesting because here it's not about, this is a robot that has been built to do nurses' chores for them. And sort of, so it's, it says nurses' chores, but it seems a little bit more like orders, orderly's chores. It goes around, it carries dirty linens in and out. Um, and for, for those of you who are here during our extensive, um, where did we go here? Our extensive <laughs> media check. I just thought this was interesting to see. Um, interesting pieces here. One is clearly you're, you're seeing, you know, a, this is basically a thing that goes around and, and picks up um, dirty linens. But clearly it's being greeted into the hospital as, you know, this coworker, this wonderful piece. Um, one of the obvious pieces is probably when they hire a new orderly in at w minimum wage, they do not get that kind of greeting when they've just been hired. Um, so that's, that's one of the issues, is around the excitement that we have around these entities as sort of these amazing kind of human creations. And um, 
but also what does it, so how does that change people's relationships with it? What is it, not only what is it allowed to do, but what is the value of having it be such a relatable piece? If what you really, I mean, you could also have, for what this one is designed to do, you could have a garbage can on wheels that kind of moved around and had no sort of human-esque side to it. Is there a benefit to having it seem so much like this? Is the benefit such that um, once you buy this, you can never get rid of it because it's now your friend? Is it that it will eventually be something that has more human-like roles to it and this is just sort of a, a, a simple start to it? Um, and what is the, the value to, is it also, does it sort of take the edge off of how we're changing the um, use of humans as employees versus robots? Um, but it's all within that care setting. And then here's a, a different one in the sort of the opposite end of the robot care thing. This is Paro, who's become a very famous robot, and it's a robotic seal that's used in, particularly in Japan, in nursing homes because it's, it's mute, but it, it kind of cuddles up to you and apparently makes very nice noises. Here, um, some of the interesting questions to think about are the people who are often given this are in nursing homes suffering from advanced dementia. And it said, these are robots. They th do think that it's alive, and they think of it as a pet. Um, but there are also people who are often agitated and very hard to calm, and they found that paro is very calming for them. Um, it seems, in general, that here, the ethical questions are a lot milder than if you move it into, say, a setting with children and said, how, you know, what is it like to say, well, we're not going to get you a pet dog, but here's a little pet robot, and you know, do you like that? So I think here, a lot of the pieces come around, what does it mean to care about the entity that you are um, looking at? Now, before we get into some of the pet issues, I just wanted to um, say one more thing about the world of, um, people of things with faces or not. There's another very old project that was done, actually I think in 1990 by Lee Sproul and some colleagues of hers, and it was a software interviewer. It was, um, people were, it was an experiment, um, this is like in the very, this is like pre-web, where it was just the beginning of being able to put faces onto a computer screen. And they had people come in, they said this is an experiment about we're looking into you know, ways of interviewing people for jobs. Some of the people who were interviewed just got tech, um, questions with text. Other people got the same questions, but it was a, a talking face that gave those questions. And they asked a number of interviewing questions, you know, and some of them were things like, you know, have you ever stolen, you know, have you ever taken office supplies home? And it turns out that people are much more honest when the interface is just text. And when the interface has a face, they were a lot less honest. And this um, belief in, in that is that we deal with anything that once we start to think of it as an entity, as something that we have a social relationship with. And so if I'm just answering a question with text, I can be kind of straightforward because I'm not trying to make a good impression on it. But once it starts to have a face, I don't want it to think badly of me. And so I will, I'm more likely to exaggerate and put my best foot forward in particular ways. And so that's kind of at the heart of some of the issues around how we 
choose what some of the um, ethics are is that it, it changes not only how you think of that entity, but how you choose to present yourself and what your behavior around it is. Um, so this is a, uh, I, this is a, it was, this is a, um, actually a Oppenheimer Fund ad. It's from a whole series called Invest in a Beautiful World. And I, w I found it really fascinating because it was very hard to tell whether it was serious or tongue-in-cheek, whether it was meant to be this beautiful future or this like, you know, oddly creepy future in which like, you know, somehow like we had like gone so overboard in our chemical <laughs> uh, destruction of the environment that the only dogs left were robots. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of interesting questions that this picture brings up, but I ended up writing a paper a couple of years ago around this, and the title of the paper is called Why Play Fetch with a Robot Dog? And I think it's a, an interesting question to think about um, these relationships, because if you think about playing fetch, especially in Toronto where it's really cold out, um, if your dog wants you to go out and play fetch, it's really cold, and left to, you know, just as a thing to do, playing fetch is a little boring if you're a human. It's really exciting if you're a dog. Now, so if you play fetch with your dog, the only possible reason you are playing fetch with that dog is because it makes your dog happy, and you have an empathic relationship with that dog, and so you care about making it happy, and so you go out in the cold and just sit and toss a ball back and forth and have fun, but your fun derives from the joy you are bringing to somebody else. You know, and in some ways, I think that gets at the heart of Weizenbaum's issue that we often forget in looking at a lot of things. We tend to think about our relationships very instrumentally. And the robot dog piece, I think because our relationship with pets is somewhat less problematic than our relationship with other people, can kind of highlight that piece of the importance of that empathy and that caring what's going on in the mind of others. I mean, there's a, a lot of other interesting issues here. Like, if you have a robot dog like that, like, is he just like hang, like your, your regular dog doesn't go and report to some other entity what the boy was doing all day. Is this like a robot spy dog or something? But the, the question of that difference between the relationship with a, a thing whose mind you care about and a thing without a mind is sort of at the core of, of these issues. Um, but then, just to make it a little bit more problematic, how many of you have ever used a Tamagotchi? So not that many, but you're mostly familiar with these. So these are these famous keychain pets. And um, basically, you take care of them, which involves spending a lot of time pressing little buttons on their side. If you do not sit and look at them constantly and, and you know feed them or do anything else, now this is clearly not intelligent. It's very simple, but it will die if you don't take care of it. At least the ones in Japan die. The ones in, in America apparently um, come back to life because we don't deal with that kind of thing very well, but basically, you know, they will die. Um, and so it's a really interesting one, and I think it brings up this other interesting, the, what I think of as the Tamagotchi conundrum, which is, let's say you have a teenager, and you're all at a family gathering, and your teenager is ignoring his grandmother, who's trying to talk to him, and he's got like a little keychain pet like this, and he's playing with it, and you say, you need to put that away and pay attention to your actual grandmother who is right here and would like to speak to you. And he says, mom, if I put this away, it's going to die. 
what is, what is the right thing to do? Do you want to say the important piece is to give your full attention to the actual live human beings who you are here with and who care about you and put that toy away, I don't care if it dies, or to say, well, I understand that this is sort of training wheels for ethics and that we don't want, you know, that while it's not a real thing, given that you have gotten emotionally invested in that, I don't want to force you into being the kind of person who could be emotionally invested in something and then just put it in the other room and let it die. Um, I don't think there's a, easy answers to those, but I think those questions that we, in the side of saying we don't want to take the side of, of uh, not the non-sentient over the actually sentient is true, but given the hold that cleverly designed non-sentient things have over us, I think there's a really important piece to keep in mind that is the ethics of what does treating something that you have a relationship with, deservedly or not, what are, what's important about, in terms of your own ethics, how you treat it once you have gotten into that relationship. Um, there's a notion in, in kosher laws in Judaism, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I think many people are familiar with the idea that <clears throat> kosher butchery says, you know, you have to kill an animal in, excuse me, in a way that's as painless as possible for them. But there's another side of it also that says the person, the shochet, the person who's doing that killing, has to be a holy person who's really immersed in prayer and all kinds of rituals because there's this concern that if your job is to be a butcher and kill things day in and day out, or even once, it brutalizes your soul. And so the person who does the killing has to sort of be this constantly immersed in all kinds of rituals and prayer to not turn into a bad person for that. And so I think there's a, a level of ethics in our relationship. We need to think about that in terms of what does it do to us in terms of how caring we are to allow ourselves to have relationships with things we then find disposable. <clears throat> so, um, this, uh, this is um, from a temple in Japan. These are able dogs. So abos were um, do dogs that were produced by Sony. They were these adorable little robot dogs that people did take as pets and developed very strong relationships with, um, which was really wonderful until Sony discontinued them. And so for a while, they could still get parts for them. And then all the parts ran out. And so some of these dogs ended up just being unrepairable. And so this is, I forget how many dogs there were here, but there was a big funeral at the um, Kofukuji temple for these robot dogs. And the little, you can see they have little tags on them. That's their name and where they lived, how old they were. Some of it has little notes about like what they were like when they were um, functioning dogs. And um, I think it's a, a very interesting piece, again, that has sort of these two frameworks you can look at, because one side says, this is ridiculous. You know, these are, are robots that don't function, and to have like a serious funeral, you know, done by a priest for them is, you know, particularly in, from a Western perspective, it seems like a desecration or almost like this parody that's very disrespectful of what is the meaning of funerals and, um, and things like that. So from a, a Western perspective, it can seem ethically very problematic to do this. 
from the Shinto tradition, it comes out very differently. Um, and the, the priest said, you know, when someone said at the end, is this absurd? He said, all things have a bit of soul. Um, and I think that's a, the, one of the other pieces that's also interesting to think about here is that there's, a, a certainly in um, contemporary Japan, uh, a continuation between the idea of saying everything has a soul and a very, very strong contemporary environmental movement that says, no, we, don't, we cannot think of all things in a very instrumental way. If you look at an extreme of Western thinking that says things are here, whether they are living things or non-living things, you know, one extreme is to say everything is here for man to use, we can just use it up, whatever is good for us is, is good. You know, and this presents a very different view that says, well, everything has some being to it, and that's true of living things, but it may be, it's also true of streams or trees or rocks or robot dogs, and that the refusing to make a hard line makes it so that you treat everything at some level of something that should be conserved in some way, and that, yes, you may be giving the sense of soul to things that are, are rocks or streams or you may have services to thank the eyeglasses or sewing needles that you had used, but the idea there is that it ends up creating a population that deals with resources in a more ethical way. So there's so that's another kind of line to look at these is, is it not so much a deception, but as a way of saying we, as humans, we want to think of, of all things as having of ourselves as having some responsibility to them. And where you draw that line has a fairly large ethical edge to it, um, both in terms of how you treat other things and where you where do you give greater consideration. Um, I'll skip this piece on anthropomorphism because I think we've sort of gone through this. So then I think one of the, the questions here, getting back to now on the responsibility side of the making. So I said we have like these three pieces. So that was a lot, some of the issues around, I think in particular, how we as users of these entities, the ethical things we need to be thinking about, about how we want to be relating to them. There's another set of ethical issues that come to the people who are making them, because a lot of the, in particular, a lot of the behaviors that the users have are induced or nudged by the people making them. Um, and here we get back to the, the Turing piece where there is this level, especially for things that are certainly non-sentient, where it's an inherently deceptive technology. Now, there's, and um, in the time we have today, we are very, very far from having time to talk about all of the ethics around deception, from Kant's, you know, lying is wrong no matter what the consequences are, to the sort of everyday, well, you know, it's, there's polite lies and nice lies, and there's the lies that we say that, you know, just because they're better for us. Um, but so just a note to say that there's, the idea of lying tends to be the, the side from an ethical standpoint of things that you do that are to your benefit and that potentially or most likely harm another and are generally viewed as ethically problematic or wrong. The word deception encounters, uh, encompasses that, but there's a, a broader sense that there's a, a lot of things in our everyday life that are inherently deceptive. You know, if you have 
children or you've ever been around children, or if you've been a child, you realize that what you do when you raise children is you teach them to lie, to not just say everything that goes through their head. If you were never deceptive, you wouldn't be sitting here. You'd be um, way somewhere because a lot of our daily abilities to just deal with other people involve not being completely truthful at all times. So here, in terms of the making of these pieces, though, there is that inherent deception. If you have the word I, if something has a voice, it implies having a body. If it has a voice, it has a gender. Once it has a gender, you have some kind of relationship with it. So there really is no way to make anything that makes people develop that kind of relationship without it being, at some level, inherently deceptive. And we need to look at them within that framework. On the other hand, some are deliberately deceptive. Um, this is. So this is one of the most extreme, this is Sophia from Hanson Robotics. This is the um, robot that was given um, Saudi Arabian citizenship. And you know, this is, a, a, I don't wanna read the whole thing, but it starts with, I am proud that I have family helping me out. I'm also proud that I already used my real AI to generate some of my own ideas, words, and behaviors. Um, so this is, to some extent, a, a fairly extreme version of someone who's clearly trying to make things that are objects with the hope and belief that people will deal with it not just as a sentient entity, but as a fully human being. Um, just one more example here to problematize this, this is a horrible word, problematize, to look at the complications in this. Um, I, don't, I don't think I have a picture of this one here, but there's a, um, very popular entity on Instagram called Lil Michaela. Does anyone know of this? Okay, so look up a little, if you don't, it's Lil Michaela on Instagram. And it's, I don't have it because it's not a robot entity. It's just, um, I, mean, it's, I think it's just really, really beautifully done graphics that look very human, but not quite. And I think all the text is, is done by humans, but it is again an entity that people relate to. Um, and Lil Michaela has this really fabulous life. She has like really clothes and she lives in LA and she has like meetings with other stars and she actually has been doing recordings with real celebrities. And my, I have an 18 year old daughter who introduced me to um, Lil Michaela, but she had a very interesting observation about this. And she said that she really likes Lil Michaela because everyone on Instagram, and my daughter's very, very into fashion and things like this, she says, when you're following real people on Instagram and you see these fabulous lives they lead, even if at some conscious level you know they aren't actually leading such fabulous lives, it just makes you feel terrible because like they're out and doing all these great things and everything and their lives are so much better than yours, even if you know it's kind of fictional. But she says, following the same kind of things and the fashion trends and what's like the coolest new club and where all the hot music comes from, when it's presented by Lil Michaela, is so much less intimidating because the lifestyle is really cool, it's really fun to follow, but there is no real person and you know that there isn't a real person actually having those great experiences, so it's a much more fun fictional experience. So I think that's a, so it gives us an interesting piece along these different levels of thinking about what are the, some of these issues around these ethics of, of deception which are not as straightforward because here it's a different dimension of what does it mean to have this de deceptive life and where does it veer into fiction versus deception. Um, persuasion is, is the other big piece here. I'm gonna just sort of speed through these so we have some time for questions. Um, 
And imagine, you know, I think right now you can think of some fairly simple things. Like there's the Amazon Echo. It doesn't have a face or um, Alexa, I mean, the Amazon Alexa. It doesn't have a face, but it kind of has a personality. People talk to them. They like them. Um, they gather around them. They ask them questions. They think of them as having personalities. Um, Amazon is a shopping firm. At some level, what they really want out of you is for you to buy things. Um, there's there, now there's Alexas that get hooked up with mirrors and tell you what they think of your outfit. Um, there's kind of like saleswomen in department stores who tell you what, you know, you look amazing in that. You know, you may not look you terrible in it, but, you know, they will tell you how amazing you look. That's a form of deception that we deal with on a fairly everyday level. But I think one of the, the pieces here we want to think about is what if you have two or three Alexas? They have different names and they talk to each other. There's a very strong level of peer pressure. Remember we talked about how just by putting a face on a career interview question, people tried to make a good impression on it. Once you have you know, a name and once there's like two or three, they could all say, you're wearing that today? Yeah, don't you think you might need a new coat? Yeah, she does need a new coat, doesn't she? You could see how very persuasive this can be. And certainly once we get you know, into issues around politics, et cetera, so the enormous question on the ethical level on the maker side is what are the, what's fair in terms of persuasion? If we think of these robots as being sort of the next generation of what is advertising, you know, we went from text to print to television, now to kind of relatable entities as the medium of advertising. Is there any ethical boundary of how persuasive something can be before it, it crosses a unacceptable ethical line? And um, this is from Harry Potter. Um, and it's a quote I really like. Ginny, haven't I taught you anything? What have I always told you? Never trust anything that can keep think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. And you know that's one of the huge pieces with a lot of the um, any kind of bot or robot that we deal with is we don't really know where it keeps its brain. The whether it's a corporate entity or a government entity, it's they can do a very good job at getting you to confess information to them, to talk to them, and to tell you, you know, oh, I feel fat in this, you know, to just reveal a lot of information and to be persuaded by them while you have very, very little idea of where it is keeping its brain. What is the entity that holds its brain? And so there's the whole set of ethical questions around what should be re revealed about this. How transparent should these entities be about who they are? Um, I think at this point, we really cannot have a talk on ethics without the trolley problem, um, which is a, a famous ethical problem um, for those who may not be familiar with it. It's, it's familiar a lot for autonomous cars, and this is a, a slightly different story I'm going to tell you here. here. Um, so the trolley problem, briefly, is if you have a trolley that's going fast, the person driving it is now incapacitated. If you do nothing, you're the bystander there with the switch. If you do nothing, five people are going to die. But if you flip the switch, it will go on, shunt onto the other track where that one person is, and now only one person dies. But if nothing had been done, that person would have lived. Um, from a utilitarian standpoint, it generally seems like the right thing to do is to shunt to this other track. 
it's used a lot there's of in terms of like framing it in all kinds of different ways and people have different intuitions you know it's a problem that's used to find where people's moral intuitions are and it turns out that for instance you um if you had to f physically take a person and throw a person in front of that trolley to save those five, people have a very different sense. It, like actually picking up a, you know, a person that was just standing next to you and killing them ha is ethically problematic. Um, but there's a, a very interesting one that says, when people were tested on this, where the per person doing the switch was a robot um, in a form where they didn't want the person doing the act of, of killing that other. Um, briefly, the one interpretation of it is that when you look at this just as a utilitarian piece, you can sort of count up the bodies and say, let's kill as few people as possible. Once you have that person who has to do something, there's that problem of saying, when is killing allowed? That there's the sort of morals that are involved in the person who's actually doing that killing. So it turned out when that person was a robot and was just like a machine doing the switching, it always said, people always felt that they should just have that one person die. But as that robot became more and more human-like and started to have a face, people's intuition was that it should not throw the switch. Because effectively what they are doing is expressing concern for the moral well-being of that robot. And so, and so that's, you know, it's a very, the trolley problem is sort of a very extreme problem, but this is an interesting one in terms of how once you start to give something a face or some kind of relationship, you start making decisions for its ethical well-being. Um, and this has come to, to play in reality. This is a, <coughs> this is called rumor. <coughs> and this was a, um, it's a um, bomb sniffing robot that's used by the military and you know, because bombs, you know, getting, um, finding bombs is really dangerous, a lot of these robots get killed in the course of action. It says, um, from the story that accompanied this said, when Boomer was lost on the battlefield in Taj, Iraq, his brothers in arms gave him a funeral. The tribute involved a 21 gun salute and the awarding of both a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star medal in honor of Boomer's heroism and of the many lives he had saved on the battlefield. And it's a, called a Mark bot. So I think part of the interesting pieces here, there have also been stories from the military of um, people moving these bots out of the way of danger. So here you have this interesting piece that it's designed partly for instrumental reasons, but partly because we tend to make robots in ways like it, it looks like it has a little head moving along. There are ways to design this that it would look a little bit less like some kind of mechanical dog where you wouldn't be as easy to attach to it. And so, but the, it, it, the behaviors that are induced by this can be very, very counterproductive when you're trying to put this thing in danger in order to save it, save other people for it what happens when you start trying to save the robot itself, especially in a situation where you're making life and death decisions all the time. So it's not entirely a, a theoretical trolley problem. Are we on, do you wanna stop? Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna stop. Um, 
I have a, we are going to leave out the issues around real sentience, um, except to say if you want to ask a question about fish, we can talk about them, but I'm going to stop here. Thank you. Thank you.